Well, good morning. If you are new with us, my name is Tim. I'm one of the pastors here. It's great to have you with us this morning. It's always a good morning when we can start off with Star Wars. Uh, I did see one of, one, of, one of you came in with a Star Wars shirt this morning, and I was like, ah, oh, I should have worn my Star Wars shirt. That would have been perfect. But yes, I do have a Star Wars shirt, and if you feel like you have to leave now, I'm sorry, you're welcome to. Um, but that, of course, was a clip from uh, episode one, The Phantom Menace. And uh, before I say more, I, I want a, a brief kind of clarification as we went through the announcements. Um, in case you didn't catch it, Guys Night Out is actually next Tuesday, so it's the 28th. So it's not this coming Tuesday, it's next Tuesday. So if you're interested in, in joining us for a good time of hanging out together, bringing a friend to come along, um, that'll be next Tuesday on the 28th. So The Phantom Menace. If you remember when this came out, it was, for, for those of us who are like Star Wars nerds, it was a good time to be alive when, this, when we started hearing the, the rumors. And, and of course, they, they re-released all the originals with new, updated, crappy scenes that were digitally enhanced. But we all went to the theater anyway, right? Like when I, It came out when I was in college. And I never spent money on anything in college because I didn't have any. And I don't know where I got the money. I don't know if I stole it. But somehow I ended up with enough money to watch all three films when they came out in the theater, re-released in the theater. Um, So this came out in 99, too much anticipation and fanfare and expectation. I mean, especially when you watch this clip, right, you kind of get a sense of the larger story. And if you know that story, if like me, the first movie you ever saw in the theater was Return of the Jedi, and every time it comes on, you think about the junior mints and the popcorn and just the general experience of that and how it shaped your childhood. You, you were like salivating at the thought of this movie coming out. This is going to be awesome. I mean, Ewan McGregor's in it, Liam Neeson, Natalie Portman. I mean, this is gonna, Samuel L. Jackson, right? I mean, this is going to be amazing. And then you watched it. Now, forgive me if you liked it, there, there were occasionally those people that you ran into. Uh, I'm convinced they still saw something else, but we're convinced it was The Phantom Menace. But it was kind of disappointing. It, it didn't quite meet our expectations. Because for those of us who grew up watching the, the films, we kind of knew the story. We didn't just know the story. We felt like the story was part of us. It was our story in some way. And, and we knew the characters and... and there were all of these kind of sub-stories, these, these plot lines that went out from the main story, and we understood that. And so in anticipation of what Lucas was going to do with this film, we came and we, we watched, and we were disappointed. Even to, the, even to some of you who weren't alive still bask in our disappointment. Uh, Ethan, who uh, you weren't even born in 99, were you? No. Um, so he's doing the AV, he's running the movie clip for us, and when he saw what we were showing, he, his very first reaction was, Ah, uh, even though the movie was bad, I still really liked the music. Right? And of course he did, because the movie was really bad. Right? It was just, it, it wasn't great. I mean, even the star power of Samuel L. Jackson, who single-handedly made Snakes on a Plane watchable, couldn't rescue this film. But it wasn't just because the film was that bad, though admittedly it wasn't good. It was that nothing could really live up to those expectations. 
there wouldn't have been, there's no film ever made that could meet the expectations of this kind of massive group of people who are living in this story and want to see that story brought to screen. You just can't please those people. It's not going to work. You're always going to fall short. You're always going to miss out on meeting their expectations. Now, expectations are are kind of a a part of what it means to be human. We all have them. Uh, We all, it's kind of like what we do, right? Like based on our experiences, our understanding of the world, we construct expectation about what's next. What's going to happen in these relationships, in my job, in my life. We build expectations. It's just kind of what we do. And sometimes these expectations aren't met. In fact, often. Well, we're continuing a series that we started last week that we're calling Revolutionary Jesus. And what we're doing in this series is we're kind of moving towards Easter. We're spinning it in Luke's gospel, uh, which is one of the three what are called the synoptic gospels. Now, when you come to the New Testament, uh, there's, it, it opens with four biographies of Jesus. The first three, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are called the syn- or, I'm sorry, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are called the synoptic gospels, which basically means there are three different perspectives on the same story, more or less the same events. There's, there's some variation, but it's three different writers kind of approaching these same set of events, telling them from different vantage points. Then John, the fourth biography, is, is quite different from the other three. But Luke is the last of the synoptics, and so we're, we're looking at Luke, and we're just kind of taking cursory glances as we move towards Easter. It's a longer book. We don't have near enough time to cover all of it, so I encourage you to read along at home if you have a Bible. If you don't, we have some Bibles in the foyer sitting on the the table, the countertop. Please grab one, take it home. It's our gift to you. Um, but we're going to have the, uh, the passage on the screen here as well. One note before we jump in, we will have Q&A at the end. Uh, so if something pops to mind, if you have a question, something you want to ask, feel free to kind of tuck that away and uh, we'll have an opportunity for you to interact a little bit um, once we get to the end here. All right. So um, as we jump in last week, we, we started looking at Jesus's time in the desert where he spent 40 days in the desert fasting, being tempted by the devil. Um, And now we move kind of immediately, the very next thing we come to in Luke chapter 4 is this event right here. So we're going to begin in verse 14, Luke 4. Luke writes this, Then Jesus returned to Galilee, filled with the Holy Spirit's power. Reports about him spread quickly through the whole region. He taught regularly in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. When he came to the village of Nazareth, his his boyhood home, he went as usual to the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read the scriptures. The scroll of Isaiah the prophet was handed to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where this was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. He rolled up the scroll, handed it back to the attendant, and sat down. All eyes in the synagogue looked at him intently. Then he began to speak to them. The scripture you've just heard has been fulfilled this very day. Everyone spoke well of him and was amazed by the gracious words that came from his lips. How can this be, they asked. Isn't this Joseph's son? So the first thing that we kind of notice is that Jesus comes through this period of testing, this this. 40 days in the wilderness where he's kind of, ha- he's, he's not eating, 
he's having his identity questioned by the source of all lies. Forty days of struggle and challenge. And he comes out, Luke says, full of the Holy Spirit. Kind of moving strongly into this next thing, this beginning of his public ministry. And what's kind of remarkable in this is to see the way that that time set Jesus up for everything that was to follow. The necessity of that struggle, of that trial, in order for Jesus to begin the work that he was going to do. And we're not going to park here for this morning, but I want to at least mention that I think this is helpful for us to reflect on. Because you and I experience hardship all the time. Trials, troubles, things that don't work out the way that we wish they would, that we want them to. And we can often see those things as kind of blips on the screen, as, as hiccups in our story. This isn't how it's supposed to go. It's supposed to be easy, smooth, fun. But one of the things we see in this story is how critical this time of trial is for shaping, preparing Jesus for what's to come. And the same is true for us as we encounter hardship, unexpected trouble, difficulty. These things that we often wish we could fast forward through are the places where we're most often shaped by God, prepared for the thing that's to come. I love what Barbara Brown Taylor says. She says, I've learned things in the dark that I could never have learned in the light. Things that have saved me over and over again. And that's not to say that God causes the trouble, but that in the midst of that trouble, God is able to bring life and hope and direction for us if we're open to it. So, Again, I don't want to park there, but I don't want to miss that, right? So, so Jesus comes through that season, 40 days. And interesting, just kind of a side note, if you, if you kind of scale back and look at what Luke is doing in the larger story here, Jesus spends 40 days in the wilderness after he's baptized in the Jordan. And then he comes into his public ministry. Interesting. Israel, the nation of Israel, spent 40, or came through the waters of... of uh, the Red Sea, as they were kind of brought out from Egypt, and then spent 40 years in the desert prior to coming to the Promised Land. Fascinating, right? Israel, who failed to remain faithful to God, to trust God, Jesus kind of mirrors their journey in many ways, but doesn't fail. It's kind of fascinating to see what Luke is doing as he brings us into this story. But then the first thing Jesus does is he starts preaching in synagogues. Now, synagogues are kind of, they're just like local places where people would come to worship. Um, They they would come and and they'd often have someone read the Torah, uh, the, the, what we might call the Old Testament scriptures, um, the law. There might be some singing. It's a a place of worship, a time of worship for the local community. And so Jesus is preaching in these different synagogues. And he comes to his hometown. And he pulls out the, or he's handed the scroll from Isaiah. Isaiah is a, a prophet in the Old Testament. And as he reads this specific section, it's loaded with 
expectation. The, the section he chooses is one that has all sorts of messianic overtones. It anticipates the coming of someone, of a, of a leader, who will lead the Israelites to this, this new age of wealth and prosperity and abundance, reflective of their glory days in the time of David, King David in the Old Testament. Now, <clears throat> this is kind of a, an uneasy time for the Jewish people, right? They, to say the least, they're under Roman occupation. They're being oppressed by this superpower, Rome. Everything that they kind of find their identity in as a people is under siege. Their, their nationality, they're, they're no longer Israelites, they're citizens of Rome. Their religion is marginalized. It's the core of their identity and how they understand themselves, but it's marginalized in the empire. And in the midst of this, they're waiting for the one who will come and lead them to the days when all of that will get flipped on its head, when Israel will once again be in their, their rightful place, the glorious kingdom of Israel. And there's lots of different ideas. There's not really a consensus about what's, what that's going to look like or, or even what the ruler is going to look like. Some people think it's going to be a king who will set up a, a political kingdom. Some people emphasize more the military might, someone who will, will lead a, a military kind of a, a battle and defeat Rome. Some people focus more on the spiritual element. There's lots of different theories about how that's going to happen. But there is this, this sense that it's coming, that any time now, this Messiah will come to, to release the captives, to set the oppressed free. And so when Jesus reads this and he says, today this is fulfilled in your hearing, I mean, that's just, that is great news. Here we go. Now, granted, it's a little odd, right? Because they know this guy. He grew up in this area. This is like, this is Joe's kid. He was a carpenter. Um, but it's interesting. Well, the enthusiasm doesn't last real long. Um, I want to read to you the next part of that passage, beginning in uh, verse 23 through verse 30. Then he, Jesus, said, You will undoubtedly quote me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself, meaning do miracles here in your hometown like those you did in Capernaum. But I tell you the truth, no prophet is accepted in his own hometown. Certainly there were many needy widows in Israel in Elijah's time, when the heavens were closed for three and a half years, and a severe famine devastated the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them. He was sent instead to a foreigner, a widow of Zarephath, in the land of Sidon. And many in Israel had leprosy in the time of the prophet Elisha, but the only one healed was Naaman, a Syrian. When they heard this, the people in the synagogue were furious. Jumping up, they mobbed him and forced him to the edge of the hill on which it was, the town was built. They intended to push him over the cliff, but he passed right through the crowd and went on his way. That escalated quickly. So Jesus goes from loved teacher who's impressing everyone to this person they want to kill. Like that. Why? Why? Well, as he, as he extrapolates on this story, as he expounds on it, he starts describing, he starts retelling some of the story of Israel, but in a way that these people didn't really recognize. See, for the, the Israelites, their story, God, like God's story in the world and their story were synonymous. What God was doing 
God was doing in and for them. It was about them and their salvation and their well-being and, and their safety and security in the world. But Jesus starts telling the story using their scriptures. Using the scriptures. He starts telling their story in a way that's slightly different. Where he's pointing out, actually, we have seen a pattern where God works for those who are on the outside. Who aren't necessarily the, the good Jewish men and women who are, who are obeying the Torah. They're, they're sometimes the enemy. The ones who are coming against us. Even them, we see God caring about and working for. And then things get violent. I mean, we might understand if they were kind of upset. They're like, come on, man. That's just ridiculous. What are you, what are you doing? We get that. We could get that. But the, like, rushing him to the side of the cliff and throwing him off feels, I don't know, extreme. But this is a specific kind of violence. It's not just random. The way that Luke is describing this, this is one of the ways by which people would begin a stoning. So they would, they would go to the edge of a cliff or a hill uh, or something, and not like a giant one. It's not like a 100-foot drop. It would maybe be, I don't know, 15, 20 feet, because they don't want to kill you when they throw you over. They just want to hurt you enough that you can't get up and run away. And so they, the plan is to throw Jesus off the cliff and then to start dropping stones on him because it's a little messier or a little cleaner than doing it really close, right? But it still kind of has the same effect. Um, not as accurate, but, you know, again, they fell off a cliff. They're not going anywhere. Um, and so the idea is they're going to throw Jesus off this cliff. And the reason why this method of, of killing him is important is because that was the prescribed punishment for blasphemy in the law. When you said something about God that wasn't true, when you painted a picture of God that wasn't true, well, the punishment was death by stoning. And so these people are, even though Rome didn't allow the Jews to, to enact uh, capital punishment on the Rome, this is kind of a, a, a random backwoods town that they probably wouldn't have paid that much attention to, so they'd get away with it once in a while. And so the plan is to kill Jesus because he's blasphemed God's name. He said something about God that they're convinced isn't true. God's not like that. God, even though it came from their scriptures, God is one who fights for Israel. God is one who is on Israel's side. God is one who makes sure that our enemies are destroyed and that we are protected. And in order to protect that image of God, they turn violent. They want to get rid of Jesus. They need to, to keep that image safe. It's kind of like what uh, the French philosopher Voltaire once noted, that in the beginning God created man in his own image, and man has been trying to repay the favor ever since. God was created for them in their image. He was the one who reflected their values, not the other way around. And when Jesus started messing with that, it went too far. They had to fight. And this seems extreme for us because we could never imagine killing someone that we disagreed with. At least, I hope you're thinking that. 
Um, if not, come see me. We can talk later. Um, but we, we do respond violently when our preconceived ideas of how the world works get challenged. Our violence just tends to be a little bit more socially constructed, right? It's, it's arg- being argumentative verbally, lashing out against people who are criticizing the way that we see God, the world, calling it into question. It's often cutting people off relationally, right? So we're in the ancient world, killing someone would be the response. We kill the relationship. We end the relationship. You want to push back? You want to challenge me on those things? That's it. We're done. We don't need to be we don't need to be in the same space anymore. We react violently to defend the picture that we've constructed of God, of reality, because the alternative feels too threatening, too scary. But ironically, in our rush to defend God, we often end up missing out on the most important thing about what it means to be in relationship with God. When Jesus taught, he put a a significant amount of emphasis on learning from him, on listening to him, on being open to new things. He was really kind of famous for telling these stories called parables. And in these parables, they're, they're kind of these multi-layered stories that are typically pretty brief, but they have lots of different layers. They're very complex. You kind of got to peel them back and ask some questions, and, and they're intended to draw you in. And in one episode, in, in one of the other Gospels, in, in Mark's Gospel, uh, we see Jesus telling a story about a farmer who goes out and sows seeds. And the idea of the story is that this is, he, he's telling us what the kingdom of God is like. This is what it's like. And so he tells this story, And he just kind of ends it abruptly at the end of the story. It's an illustration. doesn't explain it. And then he walks away. And we get this in Mark's gospel, in Mark chapter 4. Mark writes, Later, when Jesus was alone with the twelve disciples and with the others who were gathered around, they asked him what the parables meant. He replied, You are permitted to understand the secret of the kingdom of God, but I use parables for everything I say to outsiders so that the scriptures might be fulfilled. And then he goes on to explain the kingdom to them. So this is the big reveal. This is, or to explain the parable to them, I'm sorry. But this is the big reveal, right? What's the secret of the kingdom? And it's going to sound anticlimactic, I know. But I think what Jesus is saying in this passage is that the secret of the kingdom is listening to Jesus. Being open to ask questions to Jesus about what the kingdom is like, about what he's talking about. Now again, that is supremely anticlimactic. For years, I would take, uh, when I worked with the uh, university before I was um, on staff here at Koinos, we would, we would take students to uh, a camp, and we'd, it was a beautiful camp, and we'd take them, and we'd spend some time studying scripture, and we'd always study Mark's gospel, and we'd come to this part in Mark, and I remember um, that students would always be really, like, intrigued, like, oh, what's the secret 
What's this? It's going to be this huge, you know, like this Illuminati kind of thing, right? That underlies everything. That we, it's going to suddenly just blow our minds, and we're going to understand everything in new ways. Let me have it. And when we get to this place, we're like, oh, I think the secret is probably asking Jesus questions. There's like there is that is that is so underwhelming. Oh my goodness, really? No, it can't. It's got to be something cooler than that, right? Because. We want something, when we think about the secret to all of life, the secret to what it means to be fully human, to live in the kingdom of God, and in the God's good life here, it's got to have more pizzazz than that, right? It's got to be something more revolutionary than asking questions. But the thing is, asking questions is, is a revolutionary act. Being curious, being open to change is revolutionary. I mean, think about the key to everything we know that has shaped the way that we engage with reality. From recognizing that the sun is the center of the universe and not the earth, all the way to mapping the human genome. What does that come from? Well, it comes from people who are like, how does this work? Let's figure it out. Let's ask questions. Let's be willing to challenge our preconceived ideas about how things are and ask questions and wrestle. This is how we come to know. Being curious opens us up to truth, to change, to growth in a way that simply defending our preconceived ideas of what's true can never do. In fact, um, it was interesting, in 2014, there was a, an October issue of the journal Neuron, which I'm sure you all get, um, they suggested in a study that the brain's chemistry actually changes when we become curious. That there are chemicals released in the brain when we are curious that better enable us to understand and retain information. It helps us learn. Curiosity biologically sets us up to grow, to change, to be different people. We have to be curious. We have to learn to ask questions if we're going to grow, if we're going to change. We experience this everywhere else. Think about interpersonally how this works out. Think about the last time you were in an argument with someone. Now, I know you people are good people. You don't argue with each other. But let's just pretend, go with me here for a second. The last time you were in an argument with someone where you guys were convinced that the, uh, you were convinced the other person was wrong and you were right, and they were convinced that you were wrong and they were right. How does that go? No one listens to the other person's story, right? You spend the entire time thinking about your counter-argument to their argument, not kind of measuring out the validity of their argument, not kind of going, oh, is that, is that true? Is it not true? I don't know. Let me think about it. You don't do that. You think, oh, if I say this thing, that'll poke a hole in their argument, and then I'll win. That's the point, right? Winning. The point isn't understanding It's not changing, it's not growing, it's winning. We experience it socially, we experience it politically for sure, right? Like we see that all the time, where where the goal in the engagement is not how do we move forward together in a way that helps us all get to a better space, it's how do I win the argument? How do I come out on top? And that's all well and good if the point is to never grow or change or learn anything. But if the hope is to grow, to change, to mature, to become 
more fully who you're supposed to be, then we have to learn to be curious. And particularly when it comes to understanding God and our relationship with our Creator, we need to cultivate curiosity. We need to learn to ask questions, to not simply hold on to our preconceived ideas, to the stories we're convinced are true. We need to be willing to ask questions of God, to come to these stories open and ready to learn. As Jesus' brother James later says in uh, his book, James, says, everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. The key for us learning and growing is learning to become students of Jesus. Not people who've kind of figured Jesus out and just take that Jesus with me, who conveniently agrees with me on everything that I agree with, or that I think, right? Like this Jesus who supports my worldview entirely. But to come to Jesus as a student, as one who has things to teach us. Um, I love what author Anne Lamott says about God. She says, you can safely assume you've created God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people you do. Um, and we find this all the time, Right? Like, if I were to ask you what God is like, you would probably describe to me a super you. Like a much bigger, stronger, more powerful person who agrees with everything you already think. But if it's true that God is transcendent, that God is beyond my capability to completely comprehend because God is God, he's the source of all things, then I have, to, I have to be open to the fact that he knows more than I do. That there are things that if I really come to learn from God, and particularly as one looking to follow Jesus, as I come to understand who God is in the person of Jesus, there's got to be ways that's going to challenge me because I don't know everything. And if you and I are people who are consistently coming to Jesus and going, check, yep, thought I was right on that, then we're probably not actually coming to Jesus. We're simply coming to an image of ourselves that we've slapped a beard on and some kind of projection of what an ancient wisdom person might be, right? But it's not actually the one who wants to transform us and change us and shape us more into God's image. That one will challenge us, will get under our skin, will cause us to grow if we, as Jesus says, have ears to hear what he's saying. So a a couple of suggestions, takeaways, as we wrap things up, um, to think about how how we can be curious, how we can learn from Jesus, uh, maybe particularly even as we're moving through the Lenten season. So we're reading through Luke, as I mentioned. Um, One one thing maybe you could do uh, is you could choose a, one of the Gospels, one of these biographies of Jesus. And over the course of, of Lent, between now and, I know we're kind of into Lent, uh, um, and we don't all kind of practice Lent, which is fine, but during this season leading up to Easter, maybe choose one of the Gospels. 
If you're not into reading a whole lot, choose Mark. It's the shortest. Um, And just commit to read through it. Daily, take a few minutes to sit down and read a passage from Mark. And as you do so, do it with a pad and a pen. And every day, write a question that you have based on your reading. A legitimate question. Like something that you would just like to know more of. It might be really deep. Or like, yeah, Jesus says this thing and that if that is literal, literal and true, then it blows my mind and I don't know what to do with that. Or it might be like, you know, Jesus ate bread. How'd they make that in first century Palestine? I, I don't know. But it, it could be big, could be little. But ask a question each day. Write it down. And when you get on the other side of Lent, on the other side of Easter, look back on your questions prayerfully, thoughtfully, and pick one or two that stand out to you. It's like, man, if I could start to wrap my head around this, if I could start to learn about this, it might really help me understand who Jesus is and what he might have to say to me. And pursue that. Maybe pursue it with some friends. We need to cultivate the art of asking questions. We're so used to coming to these things with our preconceived ideas and just trying to affirm those. We need to learn to ask questions, to be open to learning who it is that God is and what it is he wants to do in us. So that's one. Um, The second suggestion would be to consider inviting someone either into dialogue with you or, or looking at scripture at you or somehow into a spiritual conversation with you who is one of two things, either A, from a very different background than you are, perhaps from a different culture. It's shocking sometimes until you, uh, or once you get into a room with people who have not had your same life experience, how much of our assumptions we project onto things that we, we read and learn about God, about Jesus. Some of the most helpful conversations are with people who have completely different perspectives. It can be a real gift in helping us to have a bigger picture of who God is. To that end, um, I'm pretty excited about something that, that we're doing uh, in a couple of weeks here. Um, we're going to run this series up through Easter and then the, the following week after Easter. But uh, May 7th, we're doing something that I'm really super excited about. So over the course of the last couple of months, uh, Pastor Andrew and I have been building a relationship uh, with uh, Carlos Belza, who's a pastor at uh, El Portico Church in Reading. It's a Spanish-speaking congregation. And we actually connected with, if, if anybody here knows Blanca Ramirez, who is uh, a part of our church for years, um, she's a, a part of that church now because they're Spanish-speaking. And so Andrew and I have been kind of meeting with Carlos, and Rafael's the one. Carlos is in the middle. Rafael's the one in the white polo on his right. I have no idea who the guy on the left is, but I'm sure we may meet him at some point. Um, and we've been meeting with them and just talking about what their experience is, about um, what their church is doing in Reading, um, just trying to build friendship, trying to see kind of where this might go as a, as a learning opportunity for Andrew and I. And along the way, we kind of got this idea. We're like, hey, we would like our people to meet you and some of your people. How do we do this? So we talked about some different ideas. And then we came up with this one that we think is pretty cool and hope you do too. Like, what if you came to coin us and you preached one Sunday. And I'd like interview you. We'd ask you some questions and we'd get you an interpreter. Uh, it's probably going to be Raphael. We'd interpret for him. And then as soon as we're done, their service starts at 1130. 
I and anybody else who will want to come, we'll drive to El Portico, and you can interview me, and I'll preach there, and we can hang out with you guys. And he was totally down. He was like, that would be great. And so on May 7th, mark your calendars, this is what we're going to do. We're going to have, Carlos is going to come here, and they're going to bring some of their people, and Carlos is going to, I'm going to interview him, ask him some questions so you can hear some of his story, and then he's going to preach. Um, kind of, it'll be a shorter sermon because the, the translation will take a little bit of time, um, but he's going to preach, and then we're going to, anybody who wants to come, I encourage you all to come, we're going to drive down to El Portico immediately after, and we're going to hang out with them, and I'm going to preach down there. Um, so you, you get two sermons in a Sunday, which is what I know you've all been longing for, but it's not both me, so that's okay. Um, but so we're going to go down there, and, and they'll, he'll interview me, and, and I'll preach with the translator, which should be really interesting. Um, so again, May 7th, we're totally excited because our hope, this isn't, our hope for this is not that this is a one-off event, that we do this and all that was kind of cool and interesting and then we go back to life as normal, but that we actually kind of think about what does it look like to cultivate a relationship, both in terms of these two churches, but also create opportunities for individuals within our congregations to cultivate relationship so that we can learn from one another, so that we can grow together, so that their understanding of who God is can impact us, and our understanding of who God is can impact them, and we can all grow together. So, super excited about this. Um, So that's going to be May 7th. Again, mark your calendars. If you have questions, feel free to ask Andrew, ask me. We'd love to fill you in more. Um, Details are still kind of working themselves out, but that's coming up. Um, So, I think getting around people who have different perspectives can really help us as we try to ask questions and come to, to Jesus in ways that are new and fresh and help us to grow. Um, a second thing you could do, and this is not exactly different from the first, but it, it's a slight variation. Um, if you are a, a follower of Christ, it could be really helpful to engage in spiritual conversations with someone who is not. Someone who considers themselves secular, atheist, or, or maybe is a different religious tradition. To engage with them around conversation about who Jesus is. Maybe you look at scripture together. I've done that. That's pretty wild. Um, maybe you just have spiritual conversation. And if you're someone who doesn't consider yourself a Christ follower, you kinda, you're, you're more, kind of consider yourself either a different religion, maybe you're secular, you're just kind of not sure. Um, I'd encourage you to have conversations with someone who would consider themselves a follower of Christ. To, to ask some of your questions. To engage around some passages that maybe you think are problematic. This is how we, we learn and we grow together. Not by staunchly defending the thing that we know is true, but by asking questions, being curious, coming to Jesus with our questions, with one another. This is how we grow. This is how we change. It's revolutionary. But we have to learn to be curious, to ask questions. And we have to be willing to watch our expectations shattered. It's not easy, but it is the way that we grow. It is the way that we change. Uh, this is a time where we take a little bread, a little juice, to reflect on Jesus' death and resurrection. Um, it was probably the most mind-blowing move for someone who is telling people what God is like, who is talking about bringing the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, who is saying that you know the Father as you encounter me, to have the the pinnacle of his ministry, the the climax, be 
his torture and crucifixion on a Roman cross. But it's in that moment that as we come and see and listen that we begin to understand who God is and the depth of God's love for us. Father, I'm really grateful that um, you are bigger than our preconceived ideas of who you are. That our ideas of you, our images of you, while um, they might contain truth, they don't, they don't have truth in its totality. They don't, they don't completely encompass you. That you keep surprising us and challenging us and calling us to grow and change as we follow you together. So would you give us ears to hear what you are saying, eyes to see what you are doing? Would you cultivate in us curiosity and wonder and a posture of humility as we come to you with our questions, allowing you to shape us in our view of the world? In Jesus' name.